Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Owner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. <laughs> right up to Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry we're so late, but uh, we had our reasons. Yeah, I'm sure everyone knows. It's been a hell of a month. So, um, but, you know. It's been a hell of a year. Yeah, hell of a year. It's the Halloween special. Um, and we're doing it really at Halloween, so it's perfect timing, yeah. one could argue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very intentional on our part. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well planned it. Definitely the strangest Halloween yet. Uh-huh. Uh, so Axis and I have decided to settle in and watch some classics. First up, we have Kenny Ortega's Hocus Pocus from 1993 with Thora Birch, Kathy Nagini, Bette Midler, and Sarah Jessica Parker. And following that, we have Ivan Reitman's Ghostbusters from 1984 with Bill Murray, Ernie Hudson, Harold Ramis, and Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, you know, we figured if uh, we spend the whole year doing horror, we might as well use Halloween to get back to the classics. <laughs> yeah, and under the circumstances, we thought it might be a bit better to, to do something a bit more mellow for our you know, I know I enjoyed it. Year. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I mean, it was it was nice to take a break. Yeah. So so stay tuned, and we'll be back after the chat. Welcome back. So, yeah, guys. So uh, we're gonna talk about Hocus Pocus first. My excitement levels through the roof. Just really, mm-hmm. I mean, I have a lot to say, as evidenced by my like full five pages of notes for this. <laughs> But right off the bat, I just, the thing that I love most about Hocus Pocus, because I do love this movie, I feel like the sign that it is a great movie is that I never watched it as a kid. Like, this was not a movie that I watched growing up. I only started watching it as an adult, and I'm still just absolutely tickled pink by it, as as I think a lot of the people who had this as a childhood favorite are. So I think that's, you know, the sign of some, some quality entertainment. I'm not saying it's a flawless movie, but... Certainly an enjoyable one. I saw it when I was eight. No, I saw it when I was... I saw it when I was 12 in theaters with my mom and my little brother in in July. And I remember thinking, we should do Halloween stuff in the middle of July. And then years later in high school... We actually started the practice of having Halloween in July after after Hocus Pocus. So I will say that that's so funny. It had a it had a, a personal cultural significance for all of us uh, in in New York and Queens. We did we started doing Halloween in July after after Hocus Pocus. That's so cute. Yeah, yeah because I was reading about the the release schedule for that. The Disney released it in July because they were releasing uh, Nightmare Before mm-hmm. Christmas the same yep. year, and they wanted that to be their yep. Halloween release, which I think is hysterical because my sister and I constantly have the conversation. Of if Nightmare Before Christmas is a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie, mm-hmm. but I feel like that's the conclusive answer. That Disney was like, "We'll boot Hocus Pocus to July just so that we can release Nightmare Which Before Christmas sacrilege at Halloween." To some of us. Like that was like something we've had. Like <laughs> you, if if that had happened in high school, we'd have had knife fights over it, like over Nightmare Before Christmas or Hocus Pocus. <laughs> we would have killed one another. It was a huge yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, this was, yeah, I mean, I definitely missed the boat because both of those things happened before right. I was born, but <laughs> but I definitely, you know, if I if I was alive, I'm sure I would have had some opinions. Some, and a switch Some blade. tiny baby opinions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will well, cut you. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Me, just tiny little baby fist brandishing a knife. Right. Um, <laughs> 
Just make sure you get that baby Yoda blast shield too. Like when shit goes oh, down, yeah. just hit the button and just get right on in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Full full baby Yoda experience. Absolutely. All right. Let's. Should we just dive right in to yeah, my yeah. to my wall of text? So. The first thing that I figure we'll start with is talking a little bit about actual witch trials, because mm. that's one of the things that I was thinking about going into this. Before I say anything, I just want to say that in my research, I found out that they also killed two dogs who were charged with witchcraft, along with all the people in the Salem witch trials, and I'm pissed about it. Mm. 1600s, fuck right off, because dogs are not witches. They don't deserve that. But now for real (laughs) the reason i wanted to look into real world witch trials particularly the trials in salem was to see if i could find any strong correlations between hocus pocus and the real events particularly if the sanderson sisters powers had any basis in the accusations against witches back in the 1600s Mm -hmm. The short answer is no, they don't at all, (laughs) Um, which is, you know, slightly disappointing to me. But um, there's an article in The Guardian uh, that talks about some of the common charges levied at witches back in the European witch trials, which were, I quote, procuring the deaths and sickness of people and animals, spoiling crops, causing sexual impotence, raising bad weather, and interfering with the manufacture of butter, cheese, and beer. So erectile dysfunction was a reason to burn women. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, erectile yeah, dysfunction and your butter being funky. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's that's witches, motherfucker. God, um, but the charges in the New World were pretty similar. Like in Salem, they talked about some of the uh, some of the actual practice being done through poppets by some of the witches, the the little dolls. Mm-hmm. Um, so not really a matchup. Raising bad weather isn't quite the same thing as zapping lightning out of your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose in the most general terms, the Sandersons did procure the death of at least one little girl and presumably a hangman for some fat. But that's also an incredibly general charge um, yeah. and one that's not really specific to witches because anyone can commit a murder. Now... In Salem specifically, what kicked off the whole witch trial craze was odd behavior in children who were seemingly possessed as they rambled, seized, experienced trances and mysterious injuries. Popular theories now say this was poisonous mushrooms or other environmental factors that kicked all this off. But those kids then went on to accuse their ailment on witches in the community, leading to the reinvigorated craze of witch hunting, which is a fun experiment in mass hysteria, really a fun rabbit hole to dive down if you're interested in reading up on the psychology of that. Um, But once again, this is not quite what the Sandersons were up to. To them, children were resources, not playthings, unless, of course, you're Sarah. Literally, the only commonality I could find is that several Marys, that's Mary Lacey, Mary Lacey Jr. and Mary Warren, were some of the first women interviewed during the Salem witch trials. Um, but having a Mary in common is not a, a huge common factor. Common factor, And actually, the whole movie, Hocus Pocus, takes place after the Salem witch trials were already over, because the last trial in Salem happened in May of 19... Uh, sorry, May of 1693, and the movie takes place at Halloween, October 1693. So... Unfortunately for history buffs, there's not a ton of correlation between the real-life Salem Witch Trials and Salem and Hocus Pocus, but, you know, probably for the best that Disney did not really revisit some of the most horrific treatment of women and and people in early America. Um, But I do have 
some much more, much more directly relevant content to talk about, because I read the sequel to Hocus Pocus not once, but twice. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the lovely book entitled Hocus Pocus and the All-New Sequel by A.W. Jantha. This was published in 2018. So a little bit about the book itself. The first half is a novelization of the movie. It's cute. It's fine. It sticks pretty dang close to the content of the movie itself. There's a little added content in there some motivation and inner thoughts of the characters, which mostly helps to make Max seem like less of an enormous clod, um, and small extra scenes like extended dialogue down in the catacombs, which gives time for Allison's character to be developed more and deliver some hot feminist takes, which is fun. Um, on the whole, gives you a little added value, I guess, if you like the movie. But the second half of the book is where it gets real, because it is sequel time, baby! Without giving away too much, the basics of the plot are these. 25 years later, 2018, when the book was published, and we are back in Salem. Max eventually stopped being a virgin because he and Allison have a lovely daughter named Poppy, who is now in high school and has spent most of her life rolling her eyes at her family's stories of that fateful Halloween with the Sandersons. Of course, on Halloween, she ignores all of the warnings and heads back to the Sanderson house with her best friend Travis and her big ol' secret crush Isabella for a little spooky shenanigan time, and wouldn't you just know it, they fuck up and bring the Sandersons back. So, the sequel mirrors a lot of the structure of the original. There's a little, a little romance, a talking animal, and they have until sunrise to solve the Sanderson problem and prevent them from sticking around forever. There are lots of cute nods to the movie, including props and locations. The best by far is that we find out the fate of our duo of bullies. Jay has become the principal of the high school, where Max now is a history teacher, and poor Ice Ernie was so traumatized by the witches that he moved to Oregon to become a park ranger because he couldn't stay in Salem anymore, which is kind of sad. <laughs> and appropriate. Um, yeah, I know. And honestly, like, at first I was like, Jay's the principal? And then I read about Ernie, and I'm like, everything tracks. <laughs> <laughs> so... Overall, I think this is a super cute book. It's All's well a little that hokey. Ends well. Yeah, exactly. All's well that ends well. So it's a super cute book, a little hokey, but I feel like it's hokey in the exact same way that the original is as a goofy kids movie with a nice Disney moral at the end. So it feels very on brand with the original. A little bit about the writing. It's really interesting that this is apparently the only book ever written by A.W. Jantha, and I can't find anything about A.W. Jantha online except that they wrote Hocus Pocus, so I'm assuming that this is somebody's pet na pen name, because how on earth would somebody get the go-ahead from Disney to write this without other writing credits to their name? No. I'm deeply curious about the secret identity of A.W. Jantha. If you're listening, you can let me know the truth, and I promise I won't release your secret identity unless you want me to. She really means We can it. do a public interview up to you, you know, Mr. Mrs. Whatever Jantha, I am here to hear your story. Um... I'm also very interested um, now that, and I'll talk about this more at the end, but now that they've officially announced that there is going to be a Hocus Pocus 2 movie sequel, Yay. I'm interested to see if any of this novel is going to be considered canon. Um, I'm going to imagine yeah. not, given how ready they were to scrap the entire Star Wars extended universe when they got that <laughs> franchise, but yeah. who could say? <laughs> So it could be that this is our deep insight into what Hocus Pocus 2 is going to be, but TBD. I would like to say that in terms of that, I've, I've actually felt, as somebody who read the Dark Jedi Chronicles, mm -hmm. um, I actually felt that what they did was, at the very end, 
they remixed it to make um, Ray's character into basically Star Killer, and it was a very lazy last-minute rewrite. But had they simply stuck with that from the very beginning, because they kind of was like, "We're going to do it this way." Then it was a different director. Then we're changing it back. Then we lost the director, and then we went back to this thing. It was just a big fat mess. I will say that if one wants to to do something successfully a maybe have a game plan beforehand and b maybe Shocking. stick to it yeah i know these are really you mean hard don't concepts. rewrite the last movie in the entire series five times while you're shooting it yes maybe, maybe not maybe not maybe? yeah maybe not, if you're gonna make the whole story about the search for the perfect body Maybe, because that's what it is, right? Palpatine's mm-hmm. looking for the perfect body for himself to inhabit. That's the whole reason why. And other people are like, you know, oh my God, a, a Palpatine is stealing a Skywalker's bloodline. It's like, dude, if you say that shit again, A, I'll smack you. And B, you obviously haven't been paying attention to at all whatsoever to who, you know, Luke Skywalker's grandfather was made by. Right. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert. It's the fucking emperor who made the Skywalker line. So like the whole thing is something where you're sitting there and you're going, this is really bad lazy writing at the end. It was great in the beginning, but like here we are at the end and it's like. I know. I mean, like, I, I do unabashedly. There's a lot I love about the, the new Star Wars trilogy. There's a lot I really like, but there was so much wasted potential that I think happened, especially yeah. in the culmination due to lazy writing. It's a real yeah. shame. Full confession for me, I am not a huge Star Wars fan. Um, I like Darth Vader. I like the first one. I probably watched uh, Return of the Jedi when I was, like, five, about 60 times <laughs> and cried every time. <laughs> Um, with tell your sister you were right I wept every time and I'm totally not ashamed of it Um, the other thing is I love baby Yoda more than anything on earth and I would like to see a story where Darth Vader Darth Vader basically redeems himself by protecting baby Yoda and that's it and also I would like to go back to Rogue One I think there needs to be a language correction there where um Darth Vader comes down the elevator shaft, turns on his lightsaber, and one of the red shirts in the back yells, open fire. Um, I think that the language must have been off because their language apparently means run like, I think open fire is really supposed to be replaced by run like hell. And I just feel that that's, uh, you know, or we're completely fucked. might have been another thing to scream. I know it was a Disney movie, but that's, those are the more realistic mm-hmm. things to yell. But other than that, yeah, I have Mona, nothing I think to do you've... with the the Star Wars You've franchise. really just hit upon the wonderful world of fan fiction. We're just, right. you've written your own version. Just flesh it out no, and you'll have a delightful that series that you can later sense. turn into Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> it's like, open fire. Do you know who you just yelled that at? <laughs> We're officially <laughs> fucked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, when you're faced with Darth Vader, the answer is always run. Uh, <laughs> Well, so after after a little dip into the uh, the Star Wars right. universe, <laughs> yeah. But going back to that, like, yeah, let's just hope that if Disney does anything with the book, let's just hope they remix it and that they don't screw it up completely. That would Fingers be nice. Crossed. That would be nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. T- entirely TBD, but we uh, we'll see. A lot a lot is in store. Yeah. But returning to our our lovely sequel novel. 
let's chat a little bit about some of the really interesting developments from the sequel. This is going to be heavier into spoilers, so it's up to you to bow out now if you are just dying to read this book and you don't want spoilers. But if you stop here, you are legally obligated to come back and finish listening to our episode after you read the book. (laughs) This is a binding verbal contract, so just come back. All right. So let's talk a little bit about different kinds of witch or different different shades of witch when you're thinking about white witches, black witches, that kind of thing. In the original movie, the Sanderson sisters are pretty generic spooky witches. There's not a lot of nuance to the development about what kind of witchcraft they practice, if there are any good witches in this universe, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say right off the bat, the book doesn't do too much more with that, but it does add a lot more witches and witches with different motivations. So basically the whole plot of this sequel novel hinges on there being a secret fourth Sanderson sister, Elizabeth, who rebelled against her sister's wicked ways and was determined to lead a quiet life entirely free from eating children and all of the other fun things that Mary, Sarah, and Winnie did. She just had, she had her husband and her kid and tried to lead an entirely peaceful life in Salem, ignoring everything her sisters did. Now, her downfall came when she tried to use a spell from Winnie's spell book to bring Emily Binks back from the dead, which meant that she also was killed for witchcraft when people found out, but not before providing a distraction for her husband and her daughter to escape so that the Sanderson bloodline could continue, which is, again, very essential for the plot of the sequel novel. (laughs) So... Elizabeth is essentially a white witch. She's determined to only do good with her spells, which she continued to do as a witch ghost when she was brought back from the grave in the novel. But she seems to have essentially all of the same powers as her sisters. She uses lightning like Winnie and all of the other magic that we hear about her using back in the 1600s was out of the spell book. So basically the difference is in in intention rather than in ability between her and her sisters. It's not a different branch of magic, it's just a different usage of magic. Now on the other end of the spectrum, We have the infamous mother, who is Drusilla, who finally makes her appearance in the flesh after her daughters succeed in bringing her back in the sequel. Drusilla arrives to basically deliver a huge fuck you to her daughters, who were naive (laughs) enough to think that she cared about anyone besides herself. So she returns, immediately crushes Winifred's ideas about a ruling family of witches, and expects absolute supplication from all of them. And she reveals that she manipulated Elizabeth, the quote-unquote good daughter, into hiding sources of power from Winnie, Mary, and Sarah so that they would never become too powerful and surpass their mother. So she's basically the master manipulator this entire time. We don't see a lot of actual action from Drusilla as far as spells go. The only specific spell we see her use is, once again, lightning. But she is undeniably more callous than her daughters and makes the original Sanderson trio seem absolutely moderate by comparison. Mm -hmm. Um, So it suddenly seems like a much broader spectrum of good witch, evil witch, and the Sandersons almost seem like a bizarre chaotic neutral in the middle of all of that. So we also very briefly meet a whole range of other witches with an array of unnatural skin tones, reptilian features, and plenty of other oddities, but we see very little of their powers. So basically, what the sequel novel has done is expand the motivation of the witches and given a lot more emotional nuance to them, but hasn't done a ton to expand on the lore of 
what their magic is, how it works, where it comes from, right. any of that. Which is, you know, honestly, not out of tone with the original Hocus Pocus. Again, it's definitely not a full world-building experience if you're mm. a big, you know, lore nerd, but it satisfies the same kind of desire for action without a lot of thought about the uh, the lore behind it, if that's what you're in for. Or, you know, you're an actual child reading this material intended for children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, now we're up to my big bugaboo, the thing that drove me crazy while we were watching the movie and we ta- touched on briefly, which is the agency of the book. Mm-hmm. The book. This is what tortured me. And the sequel novel provided some answers, but also a lot more questions. So back in the movie, when we watched Hocus Pocus, the way that Winifred treats the book seems to make it clear that it is alive. And it seems to come when it's called like some kind of dog or something. Yeah, pet. It also flip. Yeah, it's exactly. It's, it's, it is basically Winifred's pet. Now, it also flips open to the right page on its own, as if suggesting the right spell, seemingly both with and without being asked, which, mm-hmm. suge- which suggests not only complex thought, but also a distinct sense of agency in terms of steering events. Mm-hmm. And all of that is only expanded upon in the sequel. So Elizabeth, their good sister, established pretty early on that it was the book that tricked her and led to her death when she tried to save Emily, saying, quote, I've told you my sister's book can't be trusted. It sees all and knows no allegiance except to Winifred, unquote. So that's definitely borne out in the rest of the story as well, as the book seems to home in on Winifred and want to be with her. It keeps finding her and trying to go to her, which is bizarre. Again, it's a book. (laughs) It also continues to suggest spells, and it's heavily implied that the book provided the spell that brought the sisters back from the dead. So it was the book that took the initiative to bring them back, and not any person. So the book is is basically the puppet master. Yes! That's kind of what we're getting to. Let's keep going. Because the book also has freedom of movement. It was lost after the events of the movie and mysteriously reappeared in Isabella's room, who is, of course, the secret descendant of the Sandersons, perfectly placed where it needed to be with a witch in order to set the events into motion. So... Let's talk about exactly what the book is, because we know that the book is at least sort of alive. We know that it's made out of human parts. They establish in the movie that the book is bound in human skin and it has an eye. So that begs the question, exactly how human is it? (laughs) Now, it seems pretty much just as unclear what the book is throughout the sequel, although its personality is developed right up until the epilogue. Oh boy, the epilogue. This is absolutely the most interesting part of the whole book. Introduces a giant cliffhanger ending that sets up another story basically perfectly placed for Hoax Pokes 3 and naturally introduces 8 million more questions because again, cliffhanger ending. So once again, another warning, huge spoilers ahead for literally the very end of the novel. The big finale of the book was essentially that the Sandersons succeed in bringing back dozens of witches from hell by using using an exchange spell to swap them with residents of Salem. <laughs> of course, the kids ultimately thwart their plan and supposedly undo all of the Sandersons' magic. Now, that is a key phrase. What they did should have done undone all of the magic that the Sandersons did. 
Remember that. They swap everybody back into the right places in hell and in Salem, respectively. Yada yada. Happy ending! Except the epilogue. The dang epilogue. We come back. It is Halloween in Salem the next year, 2019. And there is a missing poster up from a high schooler who went missing last Halloween and never reappeared. And wouldn't you just know it, there's one sneaky little witch walking around Salem. Our witch is a teenage boy, who is notably the only male witch that is mentioned in the book, even among the dozens of witches who were brought back from hell, and he is wearing green, just like dear Winifred. He also has Winifred's missing spell book, which he talks to affectionately before revealing that his fucking eye is missing and that it is his eyeball in the book. <laughs> Even more fun, and obviously of the most interest to me personally as a professional Doug Jones fangirl, is that he then uses the spell book, who again notoriously hates to be used by anyone except Winifred, to bring back his dear old brother Billy the zombie from the grave. So, I have a million questions. It's the butcher's brother. Uh-huh, it is Billy the butcher's brother. Here's just here's just a handful of my million and a half questions. What the fuck was this kid's relationship with Winifred? I was totally going to guess at first that this was like Winifred's secret child or something, given the repetition of the green because the color symbology is huge in this and the book's accept acceptance of him. Or maybe but him being Billy's look. brother seem yeah, him being Billy's brother effectively seems to rule that out <laughs> unless it was some kind of unfathomably incestuous family. Or a half brother. Yeah, also true. But then there's also the question, if this is Billy's brother, when did he become a witch? Did he become a witch as some kind of revenge for Billy's death? Maybe he was a resident of Salem who picked up the spell book after the Sandersons were hung. And I'm pegging this as the uh, some variety of this answer as the most likely version of events, simply because I cannot imagine a teenage boy spending any amount of time with the Sandersons without A, being eaten, or B, having Sarah jump his bones. So I'm imagining he had to become a witch after the Sandersons disappeared. But then in that case, why did he lose his eye while they were still around? Why is he still alive? There's no clear answer here. That would be a strip. It's a time loop. Yeah. It's, sure, that seems just as likely as anything. Right. Um, then we have, when exactly was the book made? Right. Because throughout the movie, I kind of assumed that it was a hand-me-down from Dearest Mother, but its loyalty to Winifred made that shaky already. And the fact that it contains the eye of a teenage boy also makes its creation seem more recent, unless the eye was kind of a, a later add-on to the book itself. Um, which also, and not part of, you know, the original creation, which introduces even more questions if this is a project that's built upon over time. And then also, this is undeniably a less important question plot-wise, but very important to me personally. The book has this witch's eye, but clearly not his skin. So whose fucking skin is it? Whose skin is this book wearing? Where did they get it? Whose skin is it? I kind of always assumed they were from the same person, that it was one person equals one book, but apparently not. <laughs> I mean, we don't really know so, that for sure. Like in Evil Dead, there's like a lot of skin bounding up the, the Necronomicon. It's also the yes. same idea in, in Call of Cthulhu with the, with the Necronomicon there. It's true. It's you never true. Know, you know? 
Yeah, it doesn't look as much of a, an obvious patchwork when you look at the prop design, but it could be. They just did some great skin tone matching among several corpses when they put it together. <laughs> I mean, that's that's an interesting story about a very interesting killer, you know? It's like, I'm just yeah. looking for the right match, you know? The right collage yeah. for, my, for my binding, you know? Yeah. Authors are See, meticulous, you know? This is, it's a world of possibilities. They do truly. judge a book by its cover these days, you know? It is all marketing, <laughs> so you gotta make sure uh-huh. that it's, you know, the right just the right blend. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate that. Absolutely. So clearly I could continue yelling questions for a long time. But um, the big thing that really struck me as I was going over this for like the eighth time was the big implication of this as well is about the power of the Sandersons versus the power of the book itself. Mm-hmm. Because again, in the finale of the book, they they had the sorry in the finale of I should say the sequel novel because when I'm mm-hmm. talking about the spell book and the the book book it gets confusing mm-hmm. in the finale of the novel they had the kids undo all the magic that the Sandersons did every other person except this one missing girl was swapped back and the magic was undone so this implies that all of those other people were the Sandersons magic. But that this one exchange spell, this one specific witch and missing girl, was a spell that the book managed to do on its own. Camouflaged within the exchange spells done by the Sandersons, but decidedly independent, because that seems to be the only explanation for our little Sabrina Sabrina the Teenage Witch sticking around after the Sandersons' magic was undone. You're making faces. No, it's it's ingenious. It's basically it, the the book had its own. It was the book's plan the whole right. time. Right. Now it's possible. I I did consider the possibility that maybe this teenage witch was somehow involved in the casting, but that seems unlikely because he was in hell. And the witches seem unable to extract themselves from hell without a spell done on Earth. It seems that any magic they can do in hell doesn't really cross over because all of the witches couldn't cross over until somebody on Earth brought them over. <laughs> that depends on the nature defi- of the spell. You see, it there's, does. There's, there are legends of there are de- legends of devil grimoires where they're not able to be copied, like because the, mm-hmm. the the Christian Bible could be copied and printed and reprinted thousands of times. There's this old concept or one of the older legends is that the Bible written by the devil cannot be copied by human hand, can't be reprinted. And so it would stand to reason that if you went to hell and you learned all its secrets and then you came back, mm-hmm. it'd be very oh, hard no. for you to retain all that knowledge. Unless, of course, a piece of you is in the book. So there's there yeah. is a... I'm definitely seeing some segues there that'd be very right. interesting. Also very yeah, painful for is, the young man who that's quite absolutely. a sacrifice so for like, academia. Yeah. All <laughs> like of that Voldemort totally ain't got shit on me. Like, yeah, I can so like outside of the hocus pocus world, like I can definitely see that happening. Yeah. But within the hocus pocus universe, the so far the established rule seems to be that once the witches are in hell, they can't get themselves out. Now right. again, our teenage boy could be an exception because of his bond with the book but there are hundreds of years of witches who are trapped in hell and couldn't get out without basically a gate being opened for them it's kind of like the idea of you know the spirits needed a parting in the veil to get through and then they can do whatever shit they want but they need someone to open that door for them seems to be the case that's established for everybody else 
So once again, this returns us to the possibility that the book did a spell on its own to have a little reunion with the rest of its eyeless body. And that's fucking revolutionary, <laughs> especially given what the book seems to be. It, it, it just seems to be a little more than a pawn in the original movie. But if you start thinking about it as the book masterminding what's going on, that dramatically changes everything. Yeah. I mean, we were talking, especially watching Hocus Pocus, how, you know, when he is a constant fuck up and it seems like Mary and Sarah often know what's going on much more that makes perfect sense if Winnie is a th- really the ultimate stooge and everything she's doing is just decided by the book and she doesn't realize it yeah and she's, the, she's Professor Quirrell in, her, in Harry Potter's uh, The Alchemist mm-hmm. in the Philosopher's Stone yeah mm-hmm. yeah exactly <laughs> I mean this whole the whole movie seemed and the book, the sequel book, seemed to be a constant competition of who's the ultimate mastermind. Because in Hocus Pocus, it's clearly Winifred who thinks she's masterminding everything, and for most of the sequel. Then Drusilla, the mother, comes back and describes herself as the evil mastermind who thinks that she orchestrated everything. But then the third layer of it seems to be that maybe it was really the book masterminding everything on top of all of that. So it's like meta layer on top of meta layer of how many different secret masterminds there are of all of the evil witchcraft going on in Salem. <laughs> yeah. And what I'm hoping that we see in the sequel is that I hope we mm-hmm. see more of a modernized take on witchcraft where there are good mm-hmm. witches and evil witches. And I'm hoping that there's something where there was always a collective of good witches and they simply, and that they were based in something that, you know, relates maybe to Gar- to Gardnerian or, or Dianic Wicca and mm-hmm. that they simply found a way to bind them and that that's how it ended up going down. Because I've never really been a huge fan of the witch is evil just because the witch is a witch, right? I've always yes. found that to be very mm-hmm. lazy writing, just personally. Yeah. So I'm yeah. hoping that we see that that changes. Yeah, so with definitely within the there's some talk about that in in the novel. Mm-hmm. Um because it seems to be like the implication is that Elizabeth, the fourth sister, the she did try to do good with her magic, but like that was thwarted by the book, but prior to that it seemed to be that the biggest way she thought she could do good was by not using her powers. Right. And a, par- a big part of the book is her figuring out that she has to use her powers right. to fight her sisters. That's good. And then her great, 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 whatever granddaughter, who is one of the, the main trio of kids in the book, is absolutely using her powers throughout the book to fight the Sandersons. So this is a, a young teenager who's being raised to use her powers in a positive way. So that very much implies the idea that there could be a modern generation of witches who were less afraid to use their powers because presumably there are not witch trials happening anymore. It's it's not a binary of either you do spells and are evil or hide them and maybe survive. Right. There is now this kind of new door opened for right. a more positive right. interaction with magic. Right. Um, and that confronts so the definitely, of the past at the same time. Yes. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, so I think... Again, if they follow anything, the possibility is definitely there. And in addition to the sequel, so first off, there is a confirmed movie sequel coming up, um, and it's going to be for Disney+. Plus. It's directed by Adam Shankman, the director of the Hairspray movie, and written by Workaholics writer Jen DeAngelo. Um, and Bette Midler has been talking about it nonstop and confirmed that 
she and Kathy and Jimmy and Sarah uh, Sarah Jessica Parker are all coming back for it. Yeah. So very excited for that. We thrilled to see it. Just over the moon. But much more, much more immediately, there is also a um, a charity special that they are doing upcoming on October 30th. Hopefully we get this out before then. So you mm-hmm. may narrowly be able to get a ticket if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but so this is going to be a live event. Uh, it's called In Search of the Sanderson Sisters. Yeah. It's going to be hosted by Elvira, um, Elvira, and the, it's including all three of the Sandersons, most of the original cast, a ton of guest stars, just a baffling list of guest stars, including people like Glenn Close, Sarah Silverman, and wow. Meryl Streep, who's Fuck, here. Yeah. Why? It's a huge list of celebrities, like really baffling. But so the whole thing is supposed to be delving into the history of the Sanderson sisters, talking about their family connection to Merlin and how they learned their craft and stuff. So it is also very possible that there might be some teasers for what is eventually going to come out in the sequel movie and some of this lore that's established that may be coming out October 30th. Now, this is unfortunately not a free event, but I I can't. I guess we can't have it all. Right. But I definitely. It'll leak onto am, YouTube in three days or something. Anyway, yeah, so I exactly. wouldn't be too concerned. Exactly. Yeah. So you'll. I'm sure you can either, <laughs> if you want to, to pony up the. I don't remember ten dollars or so for the ticket to watch the live stream on October 30th. Then you can. If not, I'm sure you can catch the highlights, uh, the highlight reel of what's revealed later. But I am definitely excited, especially given the. Large amount of research I have done into the Hocus Pocus verse at this point. So I'm already deeply invested to see how much of this tracks with the sequel novel, if this is going to become the black sheep or if this is going to become consistent with the canon, you know? Yeah, I know. I hate it. I hate it whenever we get too much peripheral and that when we get something that's good and then it becomes peripheral. I always find that that's a shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I always felt that way about the Practical Magic series from Alice Hoffman, where mm. there's just this it's very talented writing. Or um, John Updike's The Witches of Eastwick, where, again, fantastic writing, but a lot of the original source material gets discarded. Um, you know, for those who enjoy um, Alice Hoffman as an author and, and enjoy the Owen sisters, I can definitely say that her new novel, Magic Lessons, just came out. It's supposed to be um, telling the story of Maria Owens, the matriarch of the Owens family, and that's supposed to be really good. So that just hit shelves uh, maybe a couple weeks, you know, a few days ago, a couple weeks ago, um, but it's already, you know, getting great praise. So, you know, we've oh, definitely, definitely a lot of great material with Witchcraft right now coming out. Um, yeah, it's the time for it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's... <laughs> yeah, not to this... put an exact uh, exact date stamp on this on our recording, but the, remember all, there was all the talk going around about witches hexing the moon a while ago, that yeah. this was a big thing on, on, on Twitter and on <laughs> Tumblr and stuff. And now that NASA announced, they're like, look, we found so much water on the moon, as if this is a new announcement, which for the astronomical it's record, not. it is not. Um, but now there have been a, a great variety of fun tweets coming out being like, look, the witches the witches weren't doing a bad hex. They were just introducing water to the moon. Thanks, witches. Seriously. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, the, the, ha- the <laughs> Halloween season plot points that I could not have predicted. Actually, this year <laughs> The return is of the a, moon hex. You know, just to bring that up, uh, this year it is a blue supermoon 
And is and we had two full moons technically this October. We had one in the very beginning, and we're gonna have one on Halloween. But it is a blue supermoon this year. How exciting! And you know what we're all gonna be doing? We're gonna be fucking inside because the stupid fucking virus. That's what. Yeah, yeah. I, again, I, I, I cannot just say how many times. Hope for everyone. We'll get to that in the COVID special whenever we do our mm-hmm. next one. But I just want to say, fuck this virus, fuck this virus, fuck this. My my wife has been hearing me as I just mumble it and walk around the house really, and it's like, ah, I'm gonna hear this virus. So. We'll we'll certainly post some photos from our own Halloween celebrations on the Instagram or something because if you think I'm not dressing up you are insane Mm -hmm. um, because I most surely will be even if it is strictly in the privacy of my own home okay I guess I'll have to see what I can come up with then yeah I will uh, provide me with content Moner content (laughs) (laughs) churn it out give me the content grind the bear's gonna (laughs) dance on the stage it's fine (laughs) so Yeah, you wanna you wanna talk a little bit about Ghostbusters? <sighs> I would like to talk I for still... years about Ghostbusters. You wanna yeah, know what I don't want to do? Here's what I don't want to do when I talk about Ghostbusters. I don't want to do two things for sure. <laughs> the first thing I want to establish early on is that um, whenever people talk about Ghostbusters, people get really political with it, and they shit mm. on the 2016 version. And mm. I'm gonna tell you all something right now. I watched the 2016 version and I actually liked it. Uh, yeah, no, no, it's not sacrilege. I liked it. I thought it was really funny. <laughs> now, do I think things could be different about it? Yes. And I'll get into mm-hmm. that later. But I just want to say, if there was ever yeah. a direct sequel made to the 2016 version, I'd watch it. I'd definitely watch it. In fact... Um, I'd be very interested to see because I think that the only way you can go from from that position was up. Uh, but I I did you know I did laugh I did have a good time watching yeah. it you know so I just want to start off that yeah way. and I mean to say it, it's it always surprised me I mean I will say right off the bat I have not seen the 2016 one yeah. I keep meaning to and just haven't it's good. but. I feel like it got so much shit, especially because it was falling in the shadows of the original Ghostbusters. Yeah. And if you act like there's nothing that could be changed about the original Ghostbusters, you were on crack. Yeah, you're on crack (laughs) if you think. Yeah. So let's let's get started. So Mm -hmm. Ghostbusters is today. It's collectively thought of as a children's franchise. Uh, That is not how it started. If you watch the (laughs) fucking commentary, Uh, Uh if you watch our watch along and and you listen to us speaking, uh, we'll point out where it's not a children's franchise. So first, it was a movie back in 1984. Uh, It was directed by Ivan Reitman uh, with scenes involving ghost fellatio. Uh, Technically, that's spectrophilia. Talking about menstruation and uh, implying a connection with it to hysteria. Uh, Implied oral sex. uh, That scene with Egon and Janine coming out from Mm -hmm. under the desk. Uh, very useful handyman Egon there. Uh, a possible <laughs> demonic doggy style between Rick Moranis and Sigourney Weaver. And, and just to say all this, you know, if you're disgusted or shocked or, you know, first, like, pack it in. Things have gotten worse since 1984. And that was director Ivan Reitman's MO. He was very much, he was a humanist in my opinion. He was someone who re- reflected reality, at least through his own lens. Uh, if you watch movies like Meatball, Junior. Twin, I'm sorry, Meatballs, Junior, Twins. These were all films that dealt with sex, sexuality, and to be clear, I don't think Reitman was endorsing toxic masculinity. I think a big part of his career was that he was adamantly trying to point it out and satire it. Uh, 
He was mm-hmm. definitely someone where he called a spade a spade, and he just definitely tried to to hone in on that. So, and and I'll come back to that later. So, likewise, Ghostbusters wasn't really created. A, to be a children's franchise, and B, to be fucking kids' role models. Um, for instance, the <laughs> subtle date rape jokes and shocking, you know, electroshocking a student to cuckold a young female student into dating. Uh, Dr. Venkman was by no means a role model for children in any generation. Uh, it wasn't until Kenner Toys turned the Ghostbusters into an action figure line and cartoon in 1986 that they even verged into becoming child appropriate. Although the appeal is undeniable, essentially entire, an entire generation of kids saw adults hunting ghosts as a serious profession and were, understandably, instantly hooked. Any kid who liked playing with toys that had a blue-collar theme, they got like a next-level upgrade to their toys. It was amazing. There was this entire line of shit dedicated to hunting the monsters that lived in your closet or under your bed. So... Like most successful products, the Ghostbusters franchise is a happy accident. It still continues today with artist Dapper Dan uh, Schoening uh, and IDW Comics, who's definitely wonderfully carrying forward the line. Uh, I actually requested that he do the um, the redesign of the Hard Hat Horror, which was an action figure of mine as a kid, which was my favorite. And he did that, and I was just like, squee! when I got it. So... Um, so yeah, when we usually talk about Ghostbusters, we talk about inevitably we end up getting to the 2016 Ghostbusters. I mean, we 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 just somehow conveniently hop over how big of a piece of shit Ghostbusters 2 was, and we just decide <laughs> to start attacking Ghostbusters 2016, which is just madness. And uh, with a new Ghostbusters on the horizon, it's always great to do a compare and contrast, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, however, let me just say. I really laughed and had fun with the 2016 Ghostbusters. If there was a direct sequel to that, I'd still watch it. And there were things I would have changed because there's things I would change about almost every film. Um, That said, there are two horror hostesses whom I believe are much more qualified to talk about the sociological impact of Ghostbusters on our generation with regard to gender disparity. And those two would be Alexandra West and Andrea Subasati of the Faculty of Horror. Their episode on Ghostbusters is in the description. Remember how I said that the franchise was a happy accident? Well, unfortunately, like most happy accidents, it came with a bunch of shitty side effects. Um... Back in 2016, author Alexandra West recalled something along the lines of her going to the playground and kids would want to play pretend Ghostbusters and a girl would want to play and the guys would say, sure, you can be our secretary. And guess what? That shit happened on my playground too. In fact, I asked most of my friends, male and female, and it turned out that that was not a unique experience. Uh, But that's their story to tell and our responsibility to learn from. Although the duo raised a great point about there not not being enough access to the 2016 version of the toys back then. Uh, So somehow back in 2016, all the female action figures could not be fucking found. So what we're going to do here this month is we're going to put links to all that shit. So that if you guys (laughs) missed out, you can go back and you can buy all the female Ghostbusters you want. Because that shit's not going to happen on our watch. We're going to make sure you get access to that stuff. So, without further ado, you know, I've heard plenty of people talk about Ghostbusters over the years. Um, I'm in a t- I am can't talk about it from the point of a sociologist. I don't really feel that that's uh, correct. I'm not an authority on sociology. Uh, I will talk about it uh, from the point of view of 
someone who grew up on Long Island, Queens, and New York City, and as someone who teaches horror writing. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I love teaching is that there is a bit of truth in every myth, and I love, love, mm -hmm. love finding the real stories that our monsters are based upon. Uh, one very helpful source in this episode, uh, which I thank Axis for pointing out to me last <laughs> year, is A History of Ghosts, The True Story of Seances, Mediums, Ghosts, and Ghostbusters, published in 2009 and written by Dan Aykroyd's brother, Peter H. Aykroyd. For those who don't know, the whole Aykroyd family was involved in the study of the paranormal going back at least three generations. And I won't spoil the book too much, but when you read that book and rewatch uh, the original Ghostbusters, you will clearly see that Ghostbusters is essentially a well-informed, rich love letter to the early roots of paranormal studies um, and all the figures that surrounded it back in the Victorian era. So a lot of things in Ghostbusters were likely inspired or named after real people. Uh, the character of Slimer was originally going to be uh, based on the late John Belushi, who had acted with Reitman in, you know, in Reitman's films in the past. Uh, his, the nickname of the ghost was Onion Head. He was supposed to have his legs blown off and then become that blob uh, afterwards. But that just, you know, fate had other plans. Um, the Sedgwick Hotel that Slimer haunts is likely named after Henry Sedgwick, who was the first uh, president for the Society for Psychical Research, or SPR, which is one of the oldest paranormal foundations in the world. It is interesting to note that both the SPR and its sister, the American SPR, or ASPR, are both nonprofit organizations, and they're still one of the few organizations that I... Uh, something of a skeptic seriously you know read up on from time to time um, one figure in that whole backstory that i wish would get more attention is the library ghost uh who gets the name mm -hmm. who later is uh dubbed eleanor twitty or the gray lady and she is likely based off of the spr's ruth bader ginsburg Eleanor Mildred Balfour Sidgwick, an activist for the higher education of women, the principal of Newman College of the University of Cambridge, sister to former Prime Minister British sister to former British Prime Minister Arthur Balfour, and the first female president of the SPR. She was actually president twice. Uh, no other person was ever president twice. She was a skeptic. Skeptic the bane of charlatans and hoodwinkers everywhere, read as she who took shit from no one. Yeah, <laughs> that's who she was. And if you look at her, you know, if you go and you wiki her, we'll have a link below. If you look at her portrait um, and her painting, it matches up almost perfectly with the gray lady, the librarian ghost mm -hmm. in the original film. Yeah, big so, fan of her work, both academic and fashionable. Yeah, she's fucking amazing. Um, you can you can even see in the painting. She's just like, I've shown up. Your bullshit's over. You know? <laughs> it's just like, like this is the Gwent card that destroys all. This is the Ace of Spades. She's like, hi. <laughs> you know that shit you were pulling? That's over now. I'm here. You know? It's my time. <laughs> it's my time. Yeah. So she was really, she was really something. Um, and I'm very, you know, that's, she was definitely immortalized. Egon Spangler uh, gets his name from two people, historian Oswald Spangler 
uh, and a, who was a classmate of writer Harold Ramis and Egon Donsbach, who was a Hungarian refugee. Um, however, and, and we can do this all day long. There's lots and lots of yeah. underlying source material. But I want to talk about the person who never gets talked about, ever. Oh, boy. Yeah, Here we go. Yeah, I want to talk about... <laughs> Yeah, because you see, everybody's like, you know, everybody's always telling me like, Ghostbusters is a comedy horror, and it's about this, and it's about, no, no, no. Ghostbusters is set in New York, and it's normally, actually, it's a reflection of blue-collar workers in New York, and New York is a huge backdrop, and it's actually a very subtle and awesome thing, kind of like your book in Hocus Pocus. Mm -hmm. The character of Evo Shandor, the architect, Mm -hmm. is somebody where... We don't pay nearly as much attention to him as we should. Um, so my big gripe with the Ghostbusters franchise is that we're missing Evo Shandor. Now you might ask, who the fuck is Evo Shandor? <laughs> um, so if you're watching the Fake jail fans. scene in oh. Ghostbusters, when after after Dickless turned off the ghost containment unit, uh, the Ghostbusters get arrested wrongfully and get put into holding. And Egon tells a little ghost story, which even spooked me as a kid, about who built this, the, the, the building where Gozer is going to come out of. And it's essentially a gigantic super antenna for, for concentrating spiritual turbulence. Um, Evo Shandor probably gets his name from American psychoanalyst Nander Fodor, who Aykroyd mentions several times in his text. And uh, Shandor was a fictional post-World War I architect who built the building uh, on 55 Central Park West and created a cult of Gozer worshippers in the film to one day raise Gozer and end the world. Because that's what supervillains always want to do. They just want to end this. Like, fuck this place. It's time to start over. He also did a lot of unnecessary, unnecessary surgery. In the comic book, he dies by trying to prove that he can do a transplant uh with between his legs and chicken legs i i'm glad that Sounds they found right it was the perfect great. end for me like i would have loved to watch him die that way it's like <laughs> you fucked up yeah uh, that's that's a pretty spectacular way to go um i do feel myself compelled to ask why would he want chicken legs to be the baddest <laughs> mother clucker on the block i don't know Ah, there we go. Of course of course if it's as long as it's for the bit yeah that's what course. his wallet says bad mother clucker um so we only really hear about him in the Ghostbusters 1 jail scene, but we finally meet him in the Ghostbusters video game way later, in 2009. But his importance can't be overstated, because he's basically the puppet master of the original story arc. Gozer the Gozerian, the building that allows Gozer's re-entry, and all the supernatural turbulence, you know, including Slimer and Stay Puft and everything else that you love, are merely Shandor's game pieces. Evor Shandor is... Excuse me. Evo Shandor is the evil king on the ghost side of the chessboard. Every good franchise has one, right? Sherlock Holmes had James Moriarty. Harry Potter had Voldemort. James Bond had Blofeld. This is basically the Ghostbusters, you know, their foil, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I've never interviewed uh, Dan Aykroyd or Ivan Reitman, but as far as the New York City architects who have really impacts, uh, who have had bad impacts on New York City infrastructure... I think it's pretty safe to assume that Evo Shandor was inspired by the late Robert Moses. Um, the Freemasons nicknamed Moses the Master Builder, 
and he wore many crowns, most of which he made up and placed on his head. It's a neat trick if you're someone... <laughs> it's a really neat trick if you're someone who's super rich and loses a presidential race by the greatest landslide in... Um, it's a pretty neat trick if you're someone who's super rich and loses a presidential landslide by the greatest uh, landslide in American history, especially considering who the current president is. Uh, which Moses did. Moses lost by the Moses lost the presidency by the greatest landslide in American history. Uh, New Yorker journalist Robert Caro, sorry, New Yorker journalist Robert Caro, in his book *The Power Broker*, exposed Moses for being one of the most brilliant, talented, misguided, insanely powerful, recklessly unregulated, and unapologetically racist figures in New York City history. Again, like the Faculty of Horror. Moses' story is not mine to tell. I will post links in the description below. That's a good two or three hours if you want to see how bad one bad A can go. I will yeah, mention... you have sent me some links. <laughs> yeah, I will mention that one of Moses' most notorious exploits was building the Southern State Parkway from New York to Long Island, his beloved home and mine, with bridges and underpasses too low for public transportation, and the motivation was basically to keep black people from being able to travel to Jones Beach. When asked about the decision, Moses smiled and responded, it's very easy to change a law, very hard to change a bridge once it's been built. Moses also had a penchant for an, an esoteric look, not unlike 55 Central Park West. Uh, as a Long Islander, I have always found Jones Beach Water Tower, one of Moses' many constructions, has a striking resemblance to the set of Gozer that we see at the end of the Ghostbusters film. If you Google map Jones Beach Water Tower and look at the north side, you'll see an Egyptian relief uh, facing north. You'll also see very similar sort of you know, structures to what we see on the, uh, you know, what we see with the gargoyles and the other thing and the other, you know, sort of protrusions coming out of that uh, building. And if you go 15 minutes, if you travel uh, 15 minutes down the coast, you'll also find Robert Moses Water Tower, which stands upon a mandala, which is also kind of funny because it lines up with the video game storyline about Shandor and mandalas. But who knows? It's one of life's many mysteries. Anyway, my point is we never really got a proper villain like Shandor in cinema for the Ghostbusters franchise ever again. We also didn't get, you know, we we also didn't get ghosts based upon rich historical figures like Eleanor Balfour Sidwich either. Um, Sid, Jesus, what's wrong with me? We also didn't get ghosts based upon rich historical figures like Eleanor Balfour Sidgwick either. And up until this next film... Uh, which will be set in the Midwest. Ghostbusters has mostly been set in New York City and drew upon its rich, his its rich history. Sorry. Sorry about that. And up until this next film, which will be set in the Midwest, Ghostbusters has mostly been set in New, in New York City and drew upon its rich history. I can understand why that doesn't get discussed, because New York City isn't in Toronto, where the world's leading horror magazine is. Uh, located you know it's, it would make sense that if you if you work in toronto most of the time you might not be talking about new york city as much it, it, you know there might be kind of like maybe a little bit of a blind spot there when you're talking about it so yeah. i do understand that it hasn't come up in conversation as much when when examining ghostbusters um now the only thing that i've ever felt about the 2016 reboot was that it was miscast so as someone who comes from a multiracial family 
Leslie Jones playing a subway worker while Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig were the PhDs was kind of insulting. Uh, furthermore, New York City is so diverse that I found the casting very insane. Um, I appreciate a lot of the original cast, uh, and I appreciate that they were Saturday Night Live alumni, but I would have taken away more from New York actors and talent and not just from the people who were in Lauren Michaels' entourage. Uh, in terms of diversification alone, I found the casting decisions silly. I would have left in Leslie Jones and Karen Sonny, who played, Dupin, uh, who played Depender in Deadpool and Deadpool 2. However, Aquafina would have been my first choice for the scientist, not Kate McKinnon, even though she's from Seacliff. Uh, I would have loved to have seen uh, Scott Bradley's postmodern jukebox performing in the subway. Uh, Betty Halbreich <laughs> from Bergdorf Goodman, Jennifer Lopez, Rosario Dawson, Moss Def, Nicki Minaj, Vanessa Williams, Kerry Washington, John Leguizamo, oh, and maybe this one guy named Jay-Z. Uh, and that's just a list of people who grew up in New York City. Um, yeah, so that's that's how I feel in terms of if everybody really wants to know what my opinion was on Ghostbusters <laughs> 2016. Um, going back to the actual issue... Uh, as as far as why those supervillains aren't really cool, um, the character of Vigo the Carpathian, who we'll see later, and the character of Rowan in 2016, showed that we've kind of lost the force from the trees when it came to storytelling and villains. Uh, an angry incel is not a supervillain. It's a pathetic pawn of a supervillain. Now, the ghost of someone who paid for incel propaganda or who led a group of misogynists that that would be a worthy foe for the ghostbusters and i've always mm -hmm. felt that that's really it it's that they weren't thinking big enough in terms of when they were creating so um yeah that's where i stand on ghostbusters then versus ghostbusters now um, but other than that there's a lot to love about ghostbusters there's toys there's the video games uh, unless we're talking about the Commodore 64 one, in which case, if you sold your soul to the devil to try and beat that game, my sympathies, you know, because I know many children who have actually broken screens trying to beat that. Um, God. Yeah, there was, there was a lot to love. So there's just... Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's it. People really get distracted from how much there was to love about it, you know. Mm -hmm. The terror dogs, you know, Zool and Vince Clortho, who we... You know, concluded while watching the commentary, we're probably lovers in another life united by the magic of Gozer. You know, so whoever wants to do that. Pretty good way to go, honestly. Yeah, it's definitely an E.L. James <laughs> novel waiting to happen. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I did want to ask, as somebody who, who grew up in the 80s, and mm. you clearly know more, much more about the extended franchise of Ghostbusters than I do, mm. do they explore more of the stories of, like, the specific ghosts in the other kind of media? Because there are so many ghosts that they briefly introduce in this. Like, what's the deal with the pterodactyl ghost? Why is there a zombie? That's mm -hmm. not a ghost. Like, do they dive more into the lore of the ghosts themselves? I will say that what I think it comes down to is licensing. I think that um, mm. you've basically got, except for the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and Slimer, Right. I don't mm -hmm. recall seeing the gray lady um, and fans don't crucify me. I'm, I'm almost 40 <laughs> and my brain is like a sieve. I don't recall seeing the gray lady. I do recall seeing one of the terror dogs in the intro to the Ghostbusters cartoon, but I don't even remember really seeing the, the, the terror dogs till way later in the real Ghostbusters cartoon. Um, there was there were 
and there's an insane amount of ghosts that were created that became very interesting, right? And I think we did talk about that before we, we got to the movies. Um, mm-hmm. There was uh, Cthulhu, uh, Boogaloo, <laughs> The Sandman, um, Vault. Some of them, you know, the new the comic book even has some new ones. Uh, I think it's Ellen Gold, I want to say. Let me just double check that. Because Ellen Gold is actually pretty spooky, too. Um, yeah, Ellen Gold from is was the uh, the head the the insane headmistress of a queen's orphanage. Like some of them are really spooky. Like a lot of them, like the comic book definitely upped the game. There are a lot of them That's that are really good. Yeah, yeah. She like throws orphans. <laughs> Just like her, has like her defense <laughs> system. Here, take the kids. You know, it's like That's it's really fucking weird. hysterical. It is. Yeah, one of the one of the best Pokemon, in my opinion, in the new new <laughs> designs uh, from the the most recent generation in, in uh, Sword and Shield, was this one that looks kind of like a pelican. It's like the seabird, but its best weapon is it tries to swallow a, an entire Pikachu, realizes it's too big, and then just projectile pukes it up at enemies. So it's just projectile Pikachus. So that is one hundred percent what I am imagining um, this lady doing with orphans, just hucking them. <laughs> See, like in Mortal Kombat, like that franchise. That- running out of things to integrate in that's what we need realistic <laughs> pokemon designed by rj palmer that are doing shit like that because we got rambo a few days ago and as much as we've always wanted to see that schwarzenegger rambo thing i mean a we're all almost 50 now so we can't really appreciate it that shit that's what we need we need sword and mm-hmm. shield updated with palmer graphics and like yeah puking pikachus as fatalities it'd just be amazing missing yeah, out so much it's, it's really incredible to watch <laughs> and that's 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 the fun design yeah yeah i mean a lot of the but to your question in terms of the the diversification of the ghost there's the action figure line the haunted humans were really amazing um you know janine ended up getting a costume of her own in the in mm-hmm. a suit of her own in the action figure line um but it wasn't until we got to, I think, the Extreme Ghostbusters with Eliza that we got. Uh, and let me just double check that because that should that I don't want to get her name wrong. See, I'm glad I check. Yeah, no, I check everything. Always, always check. Like, any time before we record, I just automatically get at least the IMDb's up for both movies, because I'm like, I'm gonna fuck up somebody's name, and I'd rather not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not that. It's also because, um, yeah. So there was Kylie Griffin. Kylie, there was a goth girl named Kylie Griffin, who ended up being the occult expert. Uh, we had a Latino, uh, whose name was Eduardo Rivera. Garrett Miller, who was a athlete who uses a wheelchair, and uh, Roland Jackson, who was an African-American machinery whiz. And uh, Janine cool. Melnitz apparently filled in as well a few times. So oh, there yeah. were times where, yeah, there were times where we had a more updated, and, and that's where I left off. Like as a kid, I thought, yeah, that's kind of where we should be in the films, because we really mm-hmm. didn't need to. Because if you look at New York City demographically, we're not really like it's it's not like it's an all-white city and there's no and most of my my most of my friends growing up either came from korea 
or they came from Russia, or they came from, um, you know, my, a lot of my family's from Trinidad. There were a lot of Trinidadian people who came over at that time mm-hmm. um, when I was growing up. So that was the 90s. And it's just like, and I mean, we had, an, we had a gigantic Latino population. In fact, uh, Robert Moses was kind of famous uh, for, for basically moving Puerto Rican people out of, um, out of Manhattan and moving them into mm-hmm. New Jersey so that he could build some of his projects. Um, you know, just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that... no, it always, it, it drives me fucking crazy yeah, when people too. always, when people complain about particularly children's media, like yeah. cartoons made for kids and they complain about like characters being put in as a diversity bid. And I'm like, it's not a diversity bid if it's actually representative of of people in the world, which clearly all of those things are like having a racial diversity or gender diversity or differently, like different abilities of people. Like it was a huge thing um, when I was younger that uh, when they made the, the cartoon series of the little mermaid, mm-hmm. there was, it was brief appearance of, I believe it was, um, I think it was a mute mermaid. I can double check, but mm-hmm. uh, a, a, like a character who just used ASL in the show And it was such a low-impact thing for them to include in terms of, you know, the actual labor for the show, but was huge as a representation thing for, you know, for kids who lived that way and got to see a mermaid speaking in ASL on TV. And so it just, it drives me crazy when people complain about shit like that. Like, that's one of the things um, that I definitely came up against looking at the the hocus pocus sequel novel as well because that's something where there's multiple character like multiple black characters there's a little lesbian romance Mm -hmm. which is incredibly cute i'm just i'm thrilled to see the lesbian kids thriving i'm like go teens do do your dreams which Um, i I would like to add we saw that in once upon a time too in the tv series because Mm -hmm. they got a lot of shit for that when they first did that when they did a woman kissing a woman to wake her up from the magic you know from the snow white yeah and parents were fucking going ape shit over it Mm -hmm. it's like dude we yeah, so there are tons. Yeah, there are a bunch of people in the like in the Amazon reviews for the for the sequel novel complaining, like bitching and moaning, who are like, I don't know why they're trying to shove PC culture into this book that was that's just supposed to be about something from my childhood. And I'm like, hey, hey, Mister Person who is surely white, how about you imagine a story that is also representative of people from other cultures and other minority groups so that everyone can feel included in this. And plus, it's fucking 2020. I mean, 2018, when the book came out, it should not be revolutionary to have, you know, to have different racial and sexual identities included. And especially, like, why do you fucking care? It's The story is all the same. It's the actually, same hokey kid story. I would, I would actually just say one other thing, though, though. It's... When you include all those different people, you mm-hmm. expand all the different avenues that the story can go in. Like if you have yes. and if you have a person who comes from India, you open the door to Indian ghosts and, and mm-hmm. you know, it can only expand your knowledge base. It can only enrich your storyline. It can only it can only make things better and deeper and more meaningful, right? So mm-hmm. like I don't understand yeah. why and I re- especially for New York, I do not understand how this wasn't addressed on day one because everybody mm-hmm. should have known how problematic that was. Yeah. 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 And, and then and that it became, it became a, it became, especially in 2016, it became a huge fight. People were like, I'm not even going to watch it. 
I'm not even gonna look at it. And and you think, you know. Yeah, I'm not gonna watch it because it has women in it is the worst take you can have, by the way. Yeah. I I mean, personally, there were moments, I mean, there were moments where I still got, uh, where I went, yes, you know what? It's all these years later, and clearly we still have work to do. I mean, the current administration mm-hmm. is proof that, like, all of our grandparents who marched in those fucking equality parades, we're not done. <laughs> they were, apparently, no, we, all, we all packed our shit up and went home too early. Nope. Because, like, Oops. yeah. And that's not as a sociologist. No, that's just as a human fucking being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, the work is never done. But talking about, like, lore implications of opening that up, that is a super good point. Because yeah. one of the things that was interesting in the Hoax Pocus sequel is that Isabella, who is, she's black and also the, well, I mean, presumably mixed race at some point, mm-hmm. but generally, like, represented as a an African-American character, mm-hmm. um, she is the descendant of the Sandersons, and she talks about how she discovered that by doing a bunch of genealogy and how she traced most of her family back. Oh, I don't remember. I I want to say Ghana, but I do not. I don't. Don't quote me on that. I don't remember. But basically tracing all of her African heritage. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, it was like a curveball surprise to find out that she was related to the Sandersons and Mm. that she had witchcraft in her family. If there was some kind of fusion of looking at the like witch activity on the African continent in combination with what was going on in Salem. Fascinating because as I was researching the witch trials, there is a huge different world of witchcraft and of witch trials Mm -hmm. and of like the way witchcraft is handled in Africa. Traditionally, there could be fascinating intersection if that is a door that they ever wanted to open. I suspect they won't, but if they did, it would be so cool. Yeah. (laughs) Vodun and is so so rich. All West, mm-hmm. all African lore is so so rich. It, for for those who don't know me that well, people are always like, "Mona, I want to play Vampire the Masquerade as an RPG. What would you recommend?" Free module. It's called Kindred of the Ebony Kingdom. Coolest, especially for like your Disney fan. There's like a fucked up version of the Lion King that starts off being the the vampire story. It is the best text ever and there's such rich history that goes behind it because that's what justin achille did he basically went i'm gonna take history i'm gonna add vampires to it i'm gonna make it awesome and it's just like (laughs) you're gonna feel like you're on crack the whole time and so it's the same thing here like if you take witchcraft and you look at the roots of it in terms of in terms of africa's history there's so much to take away Mm mm-hmm yeah, two things to add to that. One, okay. I double-checked in the book, um, and she did, in terms of Isabella in the in the novel, she traced her genealogy back to Louisiana and then further back to Ghana and Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's absolutely lore there. And then I do briefly want to plug for anybody who is into whether like young adult writing, whether for yourself or actual young adults in your family, no judgment either way. Um, Rick Riordan, who did the uh, the Percy Jackson series, that whole Greek mythology thing that was huge a while ago. Yeah, I loved them when I was a teen. Like I didn't make it too far in because I did like age out of it at some point. Not to say I won't go back, but <laughs> but I I definitely read you know some of the originals when I was younger. He has done incredible work um, creating almost a franchise for Mm. his novels. So what he has started doing, because he continued to write the Greek ones, like Greek and Roman mythology. He did some Norse stuff, but he recognized how much world mythology there is to talk about. 
And also that it was not necessarily for him to talk about. So he has been sourcing writers from from Africa, from indigenous cultures in America and around the world, Asian cultures, like all of these different indigenous and uh, historic kind of mythologies and folklores across the world. He has been getting writers from those cultures to write stories in that same kind of vein, these modern fun stories for kids, but touching on really traditional mythologies and kind of publishing them within his own universe and giving all credit, obviously, to the writers, but making sure like that these stories are coming directly from the people whose culture it is, but getting this mass market reception. And I am so excited to see that happening. Yeah. It makes me so happy. It's really wonderful like seeing that come forward. So that's something I absolutely recommend um, I'm looking at. I'm interested to see if, how that develops. That's, that's a good yeah, thing. It's, there have been some great ones who have that have come out. Um, when I was working uh, at a, a Native American museum, we were talking about, you know, possibly seeing if we could get some of the American Indian stories that were coming out, you know, as as stock for the as, for the museum because it's so great seeing those voices represented in a way that's like mass market kids media to get that influence in young and early and with a huge audience built in. Mm -hmm. Like that is exactly the right way to use your platform. In my opinion, like really well done to Rick Riordan. And again, if you're looking for any YA material, a lot of attorneys, a lot of attorneys will argue that you can't copyright an idea. And a lot of people will come in and they'll swoop in there. They'll try and take the idea and they'll try and appropriate it and make a buck off of it. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that a lot actually. So I've seen that. Um, I've seen people do that with other other authors who have passed mm-hmm. on. It's really despicable, and yeah. it's not. I will just say it's something where it's not illegal to do it, but it's definitely unethical. And it's something where right. I, I do get a feeling that more attention needs to be brought to that over time because mm-hmm. that's something where because people don't always get the point immediately. People will always think like, oh. You're just trying to make it so that, you know, uh, only other people can make the money. It's like, dude, no, you want other authors to expand. You want people in those cultures who are probably, mm-hmm. A, better versed in their own native language. B, yeah. have, yeah, that's that's actually like the big one, right? Like the, the, the translation is kind of important. The other thing mm-hmm. is also having access to the cultural materials and being able to read them properly and translate them properly. It, you you create huge blind spots if you just go in there, yeah. look at somebody else's uh, culture, and then you tell it third person. I mean, yeah. that's essentially the Absolutely. problem we have with most druid sources today whenever <laughs> we go back and we look at it now. Uh, yeah. So... Yeah, and the other thing to say about Rick Riordan, too, is, like, I absolutely want to make clear, this is not a charitable act on his part, either. Like, I don't want to seem like he's doing this out of, like, totally out of, you know, just out of the goodness of his heart to help people. Because, I mean, he is supporting other authors, but this is also beneficial to him. He is somebody who has this incredibly successful franchise. He literally has so many people who want to read his books that he can't write fast enough. So it is a mutually beneficial ecosystem that he's creating of writers being willing to support and uplift smaller writers and building his own brand and doing all of that. Like it's the model for how to do it. (laughs) Because you can't write 500 stories unless you want to have a fucking stroke, you know, unless you're Chuck Tingle, but (laughs) well, yeah, there are actually, that's true. There are only a few people who could do it, but they don't want to do it. It's just like, they're too busy in their own world. All right, yeah. but there's just like no one else would want to like. If I know my own world, that's fine. But if somebody's mm-hmm. like Mona, I want you to write like 
I want you to start writing about like East, you know, North Korea. I want you to go and find find everything about China. You can't start writing about it. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I wouldn't even know no, what to do. Of course it's not. not my forte. It's like I'm a kid. I grew up in Long, in Long Island. I love New England. That's where I stick to mostly. And it's just like, hey, do you want to write about like Iowa? I, you know, I don't really know. Right? Like, <laughs> probably not. I don't really yeah. want to do that homework if I can avoid it. It's not because I, I'm lazy. Yeah. It's just this no. Is... My apologies to Iowa, but I know jack shit about right. Iowa. <laughs> I know anything about <laughs> Iowa. Right. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Like, and I've had that. I've had that conversation with friends. I've done some things for Canadian history where I've sat and I've had to do research. Yeah. Yeah. That took months just to crack the surface of just to have a competent conversation. So, like, that's the other thing. If you're a writer and you're out there and you're, like, thinking of appropriating other cultures' ideas, you do so at your own peril. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I... Yeah, it generally, it means your writing is worse. Uh-huh. And, like, it's just, it's not your fucking business. And plus, like, the other thing, too, is, like, I feel like so many people are willing to, like, reach out and try to ape the wrong stuff. And I'm like, mm-hmm. everyone has the you have so much interesting lore in whatever place you're in and whatever your own culture and heritage is. I guarantee you there is so much shit that you can find that will be just as interesting and just as meaningful and that you have a personal connection to. Like, there's research to be done. Go for it. Yeah, so here on The Late Night, normally we would be talking about good causes and things that you can be doing in your community. But you might have noticed that going into your community right now (laughs) as it's flu season is... Maybe not the thing that you would want yeah, to do. Yeah, flu season, plague season, you know, <laughs> all plague of the above. Season, flu season, things we didn't really foresee mm-hmm. when we had started this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we have our own opinion on how to, you know, celebrate this particular Halloween. Uh, we don't really encourage uh, large gatherings. Please uh, no. If possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, especially in North America mm-hmm. where the virus seems and if you guys don't know there's a virus called COVID-19 going around uh it might have been you know if you haven't noticed then you know we're very happy that you've woken up from the coma um unfortunately we've got some bad news yeah welcome back Um, maybe go back go back to sleep yeah maybe go back to sleep yeah (laughs) yeah um but yeah just like Jim and 28 days later you may want to just stay in bed Mm -hmm. um yeah so you know, yeah. what we're going to be talking about tonight is uh, how we would recommend you celebrate Yeah, Halloween. some potential alternate uh, plans versus, you know, big parties or trick-or-treating, which... Um, or, or any other way to become a plague vector. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, that is while that is arguably the scariest thing you could be, I think that takes realism too far. Um, yeah. Yeah, I have seen a lot of tweets, though, predicting... Um, somebody at a Halloween party dressed as COVID who inevitably becomes a super spreader, which is a great comedy notion, a terrible real life notion. (laughs) Yeah. It's very much Poe's mask of the red death. Mm -hmm. Uh, Neither wit nor propriety would exist in you if you showed up to the party that way. And uh, I would totally be taking it the Prince Prospero route. If you did show up to my party with COVID dressed as COVID. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, if anybody shows up to my house right now, you're getting the boot, period. But uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So in terms of, you know, other stuff you can do first off, like I know a lot of a lot of parents have been struggling with kids. It's hard when you have kids, especially who are old enough to know what Halloween is usually like and who want to go trick or treating to find alternates. Um, 
I've seen a lot of people suggest doing candy hunts around your house or outside is more of a, an Easter style thing, which honestly I might do anyway as a grown ass adult because I love that. Um, and I want any excuse to eat candy. So that's. And scavenger hunts are always I fun. I love a scavenger hunt. Oh my God. Okay. Right. Immediate sidebar. I know we just started, but one of the best parties of my life was um, at my parents' At my parents' wedding, um, they got married when they were together my whole life, but got married when I was probably, I don't know exactly, five, maybe five or six. Um, they did kind of a, a whole slapdash thing. So the bachelorette bachelor parties, quote unquote, were right before the wedding because it was just that was when all of my out of state family was there. So so my dad's bachelor party was him and like my uncles just going out to a bar or whatever. But they come back. There are all these like 20, maybe 30 something sloppy dudes who are just very drunk. And while they were gone, I had set up an entire scavenger hunt around my house using all of the um, jewelry from my Pretty Pretty Princess board game and watching a bunch of totally drunk men run around my house collecting (laughs) clues and be like, okay, what does this one say? Um, all right, okay, to find this jewelry, you have to look, and like reading the rhyming couplets I had written and be like, oh my God, it's in the bathroom. And then like shoving each other out of the way to run to the bathroom so that they could get the sparkly clip-on earrings was something I will (laughs) never forget. And just building their costumes as the prettiest, prettiest (laughs) princess masterful piece of work so again this can very much be an adult activity <laughs> yeah i mean i'm very happy to own the costume jewelry i do i i'm i would like to say that axis got me for my birthday <laughs> last year she got me a tiara and it's still on my moose mm-hmm. and i wear it from time to time i know so thank you axis you it's got the it that keeps on giving i i understand and it's everything i hoped for <laughs> i mean i think i think halloween scavenger hunts are always cool because you can do a few different things. You can always set up, you know, spooky um, sounds in your house mm-hmm. if you want to do it for older people. There's lots of um, games that one can play around the house, like Midnight Murder. Um, of course, you can always play variations of the classic Cluedo, but you don't need the car. Uh, you don't need the board. You could always just um, write down if your house is big enough, or you can, or if you just don't feel like walking around <laughs> a whole lot, you can, you know, you can print out like six rooms, six people, or six teams, mm-hmm. and then six murder weapons. Make your own checklist, and then you know, paste them to the door. I've done that a few times. That's great cardio for everybody. <laughs> so if you're trying to get the kids to sleep and teach them deduction, great way, mm-hmm. great way to tucker them out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, clearly playing... we love games. So. <laughs> yeah, we both love games. Like, so uh, we've I've been playing Among Us. Yeah, both which, of us have been doing a lot access. of uh, Zoom Among Us evenings. Which, <laughs> I mean, the game already provided Axis Halloween hasn't costumes. Seen the thing yet. I'm Axis working on it. I'll yet. get there. It's fine. It's so awesome. <laughs> it's good, guys. This is going to be so great whenever we do watch the thing. <laughs> and she's like, "Oh wow, this is but Among like, Us." Yeah. <laughs> I love Among Us so much. Yeah. yeah I've only started playing a week ago. Mm-hmm. So. I know. We have to play it together because I I am excited for us to ruthlessly murder each other in space, um, which just feels like a natural culmination of our friendship. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But there are so many games you can do over Zoom, too. If you don't have the group together in person, whether that's your family or your 
pod or people you're you feel comfortable being with um there are so many things you can do on zoom you can be playing among us you can be playing you know werewolf style things i know moner has eight thousand different ways to play werewolf yeah you can play let me make that simple for everybody you can play werewolf or you can play uh win lose banana by way of skype so most people know werewolf uh basically you're gonna have one person who ha- who is the i mean you don't even have to have graphics i, I make my own little icons um but what you guys can do is you can always just if everybody knows their role you can hand out a text file uh explaining the roles and then you can have one person be the host and they will just type in a private im what your role is and then you host what you are you know you just host and keep track of what everybody else is mm-hmm. while they take turns you know murdering one another um or you can play uh, another card game that's uh, pretty famous called win lose banana um you can even play that you know that's a another thing where it's just a host and you're giving things away you know you're basically iming the roles and that's pretty much it Mm -hmm. and then you just get everybody to play with one another both games are very simple both games you just google them and they'll just pop right up the roles are very simple Uh, there's also one thing that might take a little bit more time uh it's fairly new and it's uh it's called two rooms in a boom that's also a really fun one people have been giving that a hogwarts theme i think now it's called two rooms in a broom but <laughs> i am you'd have to do the, the research on that but mm-hmm. there are tons and tons and tons of ways to still hang out with your friends yeah. online still play games yeah. still stay connected yeah you can right? also just you can go download the tabletop game simulator, which will allow you to play oh, yeah. pretty much any board game you can Anything. think of. Yeah, there are Everything. so many ways. And also, I mean, <laughs> there's no reason things can't be a costume party. I freaking guarantee you that I will be sitting on my ass in my own house, probably doing some baking, watching some movies, and I will absolutely be dressed up. I will absolutely be dressed up. If you think I am going to skip dressing up simply because I'm not going somewhere, you'd be dead wrong. You'd be wrong Mm -hmm. i do not miss a single opportunity to costume and there will be photos and i will post them (laughs) i am deeply excited um there's also just lots of autumnal activities you can do um I've really enjoyed, We do, my family went apple picking a while ago, that's something you can do. Go to an orchard, go to a pumpkin patch, maybe a corn maze, something where you can be outside. Be outside in the open air with no population density. I am, you know, pr- right. privileged in that I do live in a very rural area where there's not a lot of competition for uh, for space, but... It's a great way to, you know, get some autumnal stuff in, and then it means you can carve pumpkins. I mean, the other thing you can always do is, if you guys want, I mean, it's really crazy because this is why the fucking show exists, but you can always do viewing parties yeah. and you guys can all sit and watch movies together. You don't even need us to keep you company <laughs> doing it. I mean, we would appreciate yeah. your fan loyalty if you, like, mm-hmm. listen to the stuff that, you know... <laughs> Our tracks, well, you know, you're watching, rewatching it or something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to. Yeah, we're always I down mean, for I'll, a watch every party. Every time you guys, yeah, it should be like a poem. Every time you you watch a movie without Mona and Axis, you know, Baby Jesus. Or something, <laughs> you know. It's got to be some kind of baby cat. There, it's it's got to be some yeah. kind of cat. The cat, the cat mules pathetically. 
<laughs> yeah, there's there's also I know a lot of places have started doing more drive-in movies. Um, if that's if you want yeah. something that's more thematic, some places are even doing drive-through haunted houses or haunted hayride kind of so style things that you can do. I know. I mean, it's it's not around me either, oh, because so I just exist being extremely jealous of all the people who can enjoy that. But I have seen amazing photos of people, you know, bringing your bucket of Halloween candy and going out to the drive-in movie theater and sitting down and watching some classic horror while you're you know out there it's it looks so much fun yeah and but the whole thing the whole thing about this is like i am somebody that always really advocates for finding your own holiday traditions to like don't feel compelled to follow in the footsteps of what tradition says you have to do make your own shit up and make it something that you'll really enjoy and this is perhaps an undesirably forced opportunity to do that but this is definitely a time to you know figure out some different stuff to do stuff that is really up your alley figure out your perfect plans and it might be something you'll enjoy so much that you do it again next year even when you don't have to <laughs> right make the best of it guys because you know something it'll only enrich your future october's mm-hmm. because you may not want to do it again on halloween but you might be able to do it throughout exactly. the entire like you know might be able to do it for a whole week before Halloween because back at home um, and when I used to live in New York my Octobers were always really packed mm-hmm. or at least I tried to and this was before, long before I was a writer um, you know I would go to what we would call the, the West Sayville boat burning which was uh, about 10 minutes away from the Amityville house and uh, they would take a seaworthy uh, uh, a, a boat that was no longer seaworthy and they would set it on fire and they'd make a big pyre out of it and everybody in from town would hang out. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes they would do uh, The Headless Horseman uh, by Washington Irving in Sleepy Hollow. Oh, and my we, God. You know, I was lucky enough where I would actually be able to go to Sleepy Hollow and, you know, go visit the old colonial graveyard there. And that was a lot of fun. And so, mm-hmm. you know, and then I think one of the things I used to really love doing with my friends is I would do a four-hour movie marathon. Um, <laughs> it's not for everybody. Some people go insane. Uh, it's good to have games for intermission. Uh, but, you know, these were the ways I would spend my October mm-hmm. before I would get to Halloween. So yeah. I would definitely say, you know, pick what you love. Find what you love. Make sure to hone in on it. Make sure to, you know, make a note of it for next year because a lot of people forget things. <laughs> and uh, go for it. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I forget everything. Surely. So I just, I just keep... Lots and lots my of memory lists, is a sieve. So. <laughs> yeah. My memory is a complete sieve. Yeah. And my final my final be all end all top plea is whatever you do, for the love of all that is holy, please do not communally bob for apples this year. That's just bottom line, don't yeah. fucking do it, okay? Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really like all the poor judgment decisions on like what one could do. Yeah, like, please don't like pass plastic trick or treat bags around and breathe another one another's air or something. Like, it's just certain things where it's just like, yeah, it should be common sense. But bobbing for apples, not no, good for you. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, just just don't. And um, yeah, we love you, and it's also totally not in our own self interest to just hope that our own audience members don't die off. At least, not anytime yeah, soon. Exactly. <laughs> okay, you think they bought that axis? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that fun note, I guess, uh, happy Halloween, everyone. <laughs> happy Halloween. We have a new cast member doing the horror news. Everybody, please welcome Sophia or Ryan. Yay! Yay! Hi there, everyone. This is Sophia with the October and November horror news. 
If you're wondering who I am, all you need to know is I'm a horror buff who likes way too much sour candy and martial arts. Right now, the Nightmares and Phantasms podcast is open to short stories with a word count of 1,000 to 6,000 words maximum. They're looking for your scariest short fiction and terrifying true stories. Only one story per submission and one submission per month. Find more information at horrortree.com backslash ongoing hyphen submissions hyphen nightmares hyphen and hyphen phantasms hyphen podcast backslash. Three Lobes Burning Eye magazine, also known as 3LBE, is a biannual speculative fiction magazine. They are open to submissions of short fiction that falls between 1,001 to 7,500 words, but they prefer 2,000 to 5,000 word length stories. Flash fiction is also accepted at 3LBE, but it should be kept at or be under 1,000 words. Find more information at threelobedmag.com backslash submissions.html. If your tale expands the view of horror, consider Three Lobes Burning Eye magazine. The Tales to Terrify podcast is open for submissions up to 10,000 words. They welcome reprints of submissions, so long as reprints do not infringe on pre-existing publication agreements or copyrights. They also accept new terrifying tales. See talestoterrify.com backslash submissions backslash for more detailed information. Starting October 15th until November 2nd, the Pseudopod podcast is looking for submissions of short fiction and flash fiction. Short fiction that falls between 1,500 and 6,000 words is acceptable. However, Pseudopod prefers stories that are around 4,500 words. Flash fiction is anything under 1,500 words, and generally between 500 and 1,000 words. If you're up to the challenge, see pseudopod.org backslash submissions backslash to learn more. The Dark is always open for stories that fall between 2,000 and 6,000 words. They are a magazine looking for horror and dark fantasy stories, especially those that deviate from the ordinary. See their information in detail at thedarkmagazine.com backslash submission hyphen guidelines backslash. Black Static is always looking for submissions of new stories up to a maximum of 10,000 words. Check out ttapress.com backslash blackstatic backslash guidelines backslash to read more about the submission guidelines. Have a happy Halloween and Samhain, everyone. Make sure to wear your costume before it wears you. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.